0: Hello, I'm Harris Shilakovsky, violinist, composer, and fan of cosmology. Opus Magnanimus is a project that tells the history of our universe by introducing people who made important discoveries or inventions that enable us to understand our cosmos better. events. And discoveries, and the people who are associated with those events, are each represented by original music which I have composed or arranged. These pieces of music and songs will eventually become a compilation which will be released to the general public, but you get to hear them first, right as they're being sketched, performed, and produced on this audio podcast, Welcome to Episode Three Opus Magnanimus The History of the Cosmos in Music. Episode 3, stargazing in prehistoric times and peering through the mists of time with a new space telescope. So in episode 2, we heard the music of the ancient Mesopotamians, the people who inhabited the Fertile Crescent which people later thought might be the Garden of Eden, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. By the way, I really must, before we go farther, recommend the Heilbrunn Timeline of Art History and the associated essays, which are based on art, which you can find in the Metropolitan Art Museum in New York. As you might recall, my podcast, Opus Magnanimus, The History of Cosmos and Music, is a STEAM project, S-T-E-A-M. A A great deal of support and attention has been given to the teaching of STEM, S-T-E-M, science, technology, engineering, and math. But being a professional musician... Music being one of the fine arts, I feel the need to include the study of music as one of the most important subjects we all need to be educated in, in order to understand our world, our civilization, and the universe which we inhabit. So, getting back to the Heilbrunn timeline at the Met, I keep finding that many of the things, that archaeologists have found that contribute to our understanding of what people used in all periods of human history are objects of art. A vase, a carved elephant tusk, wall drawings, ancient scrolls, etc., etc., These things are inscribed or painted or otherwise decorated with numeric information many times and pictures that depict related things that explain how people use the celestial constellations and groupings of celestial lights in the sky to navigate various aspects of their lives. The depictions of their gods in their artwork show how they related their spiritual and other day-to-day practices to the seasonal changes which followed the patterns of which points of light in the sky were visible at different times on their calendars. Their calendars were designed reflecting this celestial information— And then these calendars were used to create their functional and spiritual practices in their lives. Of course, I encourage you to visit my website, where you can find this podcast, of course, but also where you can find some imagery which shows some of these examples of how artwork depicts this celestial information that was so important to people's lives. Now, we talked before about the Mesopotamian creation myths. Some of the oldest stories that have been Found in these archaeological digs. These stories that describe creation are very prominent in many cultures of the world. And in Mesopotamia, uh, there's evidence of this type of creation myth depictions from the third millennium. In other words, going back about as far back as about 3000 before the Common Era. We find depictions of the Sumerian god Ninurta, who was also known as Ningirsu. References to Ninurta in very early archaeological findings show that he was more specifically the god of agriculture and healing. Ninurta was son of Enlil, the lord of the wind, or really the lord of the wind and the air and the earth and the storms. It was only later that he became known to later generations as more of a war god. And that paralleled the increasing militarism of the land of Mesopotamia. Later, Ninurta became known as a warrior and a hero-god. He became associated with the planet Saturn in Babylonian times, so much later. Gods in the ancient times were like people. Their influence and mythological stories changed from generation to generation. Their identities changed as things in life changed for people. This morphing of their biographical stories must have traced the changes in various historical factors. Major weather changes, other natural changes, things like earthquakes volcanoes, changes in the influence of different cities and states. So you might say the gods' descriptions change as the winds of politics blew. The powers or influences of these different gods followed the powers and influences of the places where they held sway, along with the rulers of those places. The deities temples were places where great power was seated, even though the science of orbits and eclipses wasn't yet fully understood. The influence of the appearances and disappearances of planets began to be associated with the ups and downs of political leaders and their deities— You can read more about the history of Ninurta in the Wikipedia article on Ninurta or the Britannica article on the same subject, which I will list at the end, or I should say underneath the podcast, uh, wherever you are, Watching, or I should say, listening since this is an audio podcast. Now, since Nenurta was the son of Enlil, I have based his, Nenurta's theme music on his father, Enlil's music. Just like in biology, the offspring tend to look and sometimes even act like their biological parents. In fact, even adoptive children or babies of animals or plants begin to mimic the characteristics of their parents. It seems that hundreds of years later, Ninurta or Ningirsu became known as Nimrod, the giant or the archer and became known to later civilizations as Orion, which, if you look in the sky, it's the easiest constellation to identify in the night sky. The patron god of Babylon was Marduk. Now, this is several thousand years after the Sumerians, who lived in the same location, held sway. And this god, Marduk, was recognized in Babylonian astrology as being associated with the planet Jupiter. Babylonian astronomers were able to identify Jupiter, or the planet that that came to be known as Jupiter, in uh, about 2,000 years before the Common Era. Now, the planet Mercury was associated with the Babylonian god Nabu, who was the son of Marduk. Uh, And uh, Nabu was, in Sumerian times, had been identified with Enki. So a lot of myths about enki were uh, collected from various uh, archaeological digs uh, that uh, were found in uh, the southern part of Iraq, modern Iraq. Uh, And uh, this uh, nabu was mentioned um, in uh, early cuneiform uh, tablets that were found in these digs. And evidently, Nabu was prominent uh, three thousand years before the common era, of course, and all the way up to what we know as the Hellenistic period. So, this god was, you know, recognized by people, or p- prayed to, or whatever, uh, for thousands of years. Uh, Nabu is uh, translated as Lord of the Earth, or perhaps, you know, these translations are difficult for uh, scholars to figure out. It might be Lord of Water, Uh, just as Enki is a god of water. He was the keeper of the powers called I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. M-E, me, or me. I don't know which. Uh, Which is the gifts of civilization. So Enki was also uh, depicted with a horned crown, uh, which was a sign of godliness, divinity, whatever, and was associated with the uh, band in the southern part of the sky uh, of the constellations that are known as the stars of Ea, but also with the constellation as the field, which is also known to us as the square of Pegasus. Talking about the whole Mesopotamian as being one of the earliest times that we have records of things from these cuneiform tablets, but in fact I, and I really thought that after we talked about the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians and uh, all that stuff, that we would jump up to about 1200 before the Common Era, uh, you know, to the to the next period of time and discoveries and, and ways that people look at the sky and that kind of thing. But as I looked for information about the next subject, I suddenly stumbled on... Some evidence that people might have been thinking about time and space way earlier in history, but I guess because it's hard to find uh, historical or artistic records uh, of early early history um, that uh you know, we just sort of focus on the, that, that Mesopotamian period, and the, the Fertile Crescent, uh, where we think of humanity as sort of starting. But in fact, uh, we find that this is not so. Turns out that, that there have been findings, uh, archaeological digs and, and such, uh, that go back many many more years, I mean that indicate that there has been human presence and not just humans, but the things that we think of humans as being as sort of having really sort of sophisticated functioning brains um, so I see that um in one of my little Wikipedia searches uh that there was a uh, carved ivory tusk from a mammoth. Uh, you know, as, as we know, the mammoth has you know, went extinct um, around the, you know, the, end of the ice age, I suppose, um, which makes it over 30,000 years old. And so this carved ivory piece Uh, they think it could be an actual star chart because it looks a little bit like the constellation Orion. So it's been uh, suggested that um, a drawing that they found in the Lascaux Caves in France, again, they're dating it somewhere between 10,000 to 33,000 years ago could be uh, a, a pictorial representation of Pleiades, the Summer Triangle, and the Northern Crown. So there's th- three different uh, groupings of, of uh, celestial objects um, that they think might be depicted on this thing very, very, very old. So people were looking and recording what they saw in the sky, which of course hasn't changed significantly, a huge amount. So what they saw 30,000 years ago was very similar to what we still see in the sky. Assuming, of course, that you can see the sky, this is a modern problem. Uh, We, of course, have pollution, which human beings have largely created, And now we have problems of satellites which are being launched into the sky which reflect sunlight and therefore are creating disturbances in the sightings uh, that people with telescopes are making. It's uh, kind of messing up the ability to look clearly at the sky. So between pollution Uh, from industrial sources and satellites, again, which are part of our industries, Um, humankind is making it very difficult to learn more about the sky because we can't look as effectively with the naked eye or with Earth-based telescopes. So you say, well, no problem, we now have space telescopes. No big deal. Uh, Well, yes, in a way, that's true, but um, that means that only people with access to space telescopes are the ones that can actually look at the sky, Uh, and that makes it very difficult for, let's say, a young person who lives in a part of Los Angeles, let's say, where they have a lot of pollution, to be able to see the sky. So, anyway, getting back to our ancient cultures, uh, structures that might have another little thing that they mentioned, uh, things like Stonehenge, uh, that uh, were big structures, probably f- um, served as uh, some sort of uh, astronomical um, you know, sort of tools, uh, because of the way that they align with uh, heavenly bodies, uh, and of course, uh, early people probably used them in religious and social sort of uh, events or whatever. Uh, so, um, so yeah, and we know that the, of course, the calendars which use. Either the sun or the moon, or a combination of the sun and the moon, uh, and when they rise and when they come down, um, that were used to mark days and months and years, were very important for people who planted their own food, so agrarian or agricultural uh, civilizations. And um, the harvest depended on, you know, you had to plant at the right time of year, um, you know. The full moon was really important for travel also because you actually use the moon if you were traveling at night to get to a marketplace or whatever uh, because they didn't have the streetlights in those days. So so just uh, moving on here, I wanted to say that I was just fascinated that I found... uh, Things going back, as I said, to much more ancient times, prehistory, I would call it, uh, or prehistoric times. Uh, so, prehistory is what is history? History is really what human beings have written down of our past. Um, so, prehistory would be well, we don't have anything written about that, so we call it prehistory. It's actually kind of a misnomer because we actually do have recorded things, like, uh, like. Um, uh, oh, uh, one particular archaeologist, Alexander Marshak, had a theory that these sticks, th- these bones that were found in places like Africa and Europe might be showing, again, the phases of the moon. A lot of people don't agree with him. Um, So this is a, you know, many scientific theories are are unproven until you have a lot more evidence. Um, There's a uh, calendar that was found in uh, the Dee River Valley, in the Aberdeenshire area of Scotland, which was known as the Warren Field Calendar. They found it in uh, 2004. They dug it up or whatever. Um, And they think that it's an old calendar created around 8,000 before the Common Era. So, you know, before other calendars. And uh, it's... um, It's actually like a monument. It's it's not just—it's not what we think of as being a calendar. It's actually a series of pits dug in the ground. Twelve pits. Well, there are. We think of there being twelve months in the year. Um, So these pits in the ground sort of mimic the the phases of the moon, Um, and uh, and uh, then there's. There's uh, a circle in Germany that belongs to what they call the linear pottery culture. Um, And then uh, there's a a Nebra sky disk, which was from the Bronze Age. Uh, It was buried in Germany. Um, And uh, this was... uh, also, like kind of old. So anyway, there there are many things that have been found that show that people were um, depicting the uh, the ancient uh, uh, the, their moon um, from many many years before. So let's that's what what people were looking at and interpreting uh, back then. Of course, they were using the naked eye, so to speak. Nowadays, so we have people who are making discoveries now that are obviously much, much more sophisticated. Um, So let's talk about some discoveries nowadays, contemporary discoveries, and some people who Help to make them happen. So, you know, because like we said, telling the tale of the history of our cosmos includes reaching back in history to understand what our ancestors thought about it, but it also includes everything up to the present, including people who have discovered things uh, and the people of all races and ethnicities. Um, now, let's uh, let's jump up to that. We started talking about it a little bit in episode two, but let's explore a little bit more about the newest, grandest uh, space telescope, the NGST. which is what I call this project. Um, why do I call it NGST and not JWST, not James Webb? Well, I think I started talking about that a little bit last time, but I'll just, I'll just uh, do a little quick reminder. First of all, we'll just talk about who actually was the person who really kind of got this NGST started the senior project scientist for the NGST is is Dr. John C. Mather. Now he is the current senior project scientist. So he's working on it right now. This project of course has been in development for 20 years. So John C. John, Dr. Mather is an American astrophysicist and a cosmologist. And he's part of the uh, wonderful team of people who have developed uh, this incredible project, which, by the way, is a follow-on of the Hubble telescope. So a lot of people will remember the Hubble telescope. Uh, It was supposed to be the greatest uh, telescope because, again, it wasn't um, affected by our Earth atmosphere, there were no clouds in the way. When you launch the Hubble up into space, it's not clouded by dust and atmospheric gases, i.e. oxygen or whatever, any kind of any kind of particles um, or light. You know, light pollution is a big problem for people who are looking at the stars. So Hubble was, great, because it was launched right into the sky, and of course we had to use the space shuttle, and our astronauts had to do spacewalks and things to repair it, because it did have some problems after it was launched. Anyway, um, there's an organization called STSCI, which is short for Space Telescope Science or whatever. Um, and that's like an institute. It was the first director of that organization's name was Riccardo Giacconi. And uh, let's just take a, let's take a quick look at Riccardo Giacconi. this guy dr. Giacconi, was was a, a fine man I'm sure he he had a, a, this great quote um, that's uh, that's listed on this STSI, which is actually Space Telescope Science Institute um, uh, he said that the a scientific organization should be a place of clarity and scientific truth dedicated to the pursuit of excellence. Kind of hard to argue with that. He actually um, wrote a a book called Secrets of the Hoary Deep, a Personal History of Modern Astronomy. So, and that was actually quoted from that book. Began organizing workshops to plan this next generation space telescope um, that would be a lot bigger than Hubble and it would uh, use um, infrared light, uh, which is, you know, there's different kinds of light. Uh, There are different spectrum of light, uh, or the electromagnetic spectrum, and the infrared is, they thought that that would be a good way to look very far and get good focus. Um, So, okay, we'll talk more about the technology of it later on. Um, anyway, it got to be popular in the 1990s, and th- then it got uh, recommended as a as a top space space-based priority um, by the Decadal uh, Survey. Um, the Decadal Survey, of course, is uh, this uh, you know group of scientists that get together and and study and think about what should be the next thing that gets uh the support of the uh the scientific community and the money from the government which of course comes from us taxpayers um so anyway uh after they after they started building it um it was renamed after James Webb and you know we're going to talk about that again a little bit later but uh I think we already did a little bit in episode 2 um, and they use new technologies, uh, as I said, to enable this telescope to see deeper into the universe and answer uh, some really important questions about uh, the origins of the planets and the stars um, in the Milky Way, and also to look at the first light that occurred in the universe. So um, ST or the Space Telescope Science Institute, uh, was um, named as the organization that would that would uh, oversee the this new space telescope um, and um, so they they'd been working for like 30 years to do this to you know to develop this whole idea um, so anyway uh, we're gonna go we're gonna revisit this uh, but um, Let's look uh, again at the NGST since it just um, kind of made it into the big time. You know, we're seeing a lot about it since, well, I should say I'm pleased that as I viewed the presentation that NASA did with President Biden, where he explained how excited he was about the first images from the space telescope, the new space telescope, that it looked like. I was happy that it looked like there was more diversity on the staff that presented all this for the public. Um, as we had explored in episode two, I had been unhappy to learn of the homophobia and the discriminatory treatment of employees at NASA, which me is hardly the type of environment that would encourage young people to feel inspired to join the ranks of discoverers and adventurers at these types of institutions where space-related projects are dreamed up, developed, and built, and launched, and then studied for years afterwards. So it was way back in 2002, almost 20 years ago, when Webb's name was first applied to what had been previously referred to as this Next Generation Space Telescope, the NGST, that decision was later called into question as JWST's launch neared, and many scientists argued that Webb, participating in discrimination against gay and lesbian NASA employees during his time as the administrator of the agency, shouldn't have his name fixed to this high-profile observatory. Um, so, and uh, you can read about uh, some a good article about this in the. Uh, Uh, space.com which is the uh, related um, website of the uh, publication Live Science Um, by the way uh, they reported also that NASA had said that they basically have refused to rename the mission despite the uh, pressure to do so so I'm not sure if we talked enough about the lavender scare. Um, But in any case, I just want to say that uh, moving forward, um, just to be really clear about it, my policy on this podcast about the naming of this telescope that I'll be referring to this telescope as the Next Generation Space Telescope, NGST, instead of using the NASA designation until there's a general consensus among the scientific community that the name reflects a sufficient sensitivity to people who've long been mistreated and disrespected and that is more widely accepted by the greater scientific, astronomical, and indeed all of free society. Uh, Yahoo Finance interestingly enough a publication which you can find online and again I will uh, give you the links to all these publications so you can look up the uh, original information uh, or articles that have been written on this but uh, you know they um, the communities of uh, scientific and the queer communities within the scientific uh, community um, are pushing to rename the, the the JWST with a new name um, because of uh, James Webb's alleged involvement in uh, anti-LGBTQ government policies in uh, the middle of the 1900s. Um, so uh, you know, NASA is feeling like this is a really, really important moment. They call it an Apollo moment. Um, you know, which is going to answer these questions about you know the the early history of of our universe. But the, but um, when uh, when Webb served as the Under Secretary of State during the Truman administration. Um, the Truman administration oversaw um, the firing of LGBTQ employees. Now, you have to remember that people didn't just, not that it's a small thing to lose your job, your position, but also your life, your reputation. Um, And when people... Uh, when this kind of thing happens to people where their government organizes against them as a group it's beyond discriminatory it's it's. Um, I see it as being a form of it's very similar to Nazism where people are isolated and uh, discriminated against and, and hurt uh, deeply but those people of course are are scored they' they're they're damaged um, psychologically by the experience and you'll see when things like this happen to groups of people that uh, the rates of depression and suicide amongst those people uh, goes up and so you will see in fact people dying as a result of these policies that's pretty drastic um, So NASA actually said that they conducted a, quote, exhaustive search through currently accessible archives on James Webb and his career, Um, and they talked to experts, blah, 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 and they didn't find any evidence that they thought would point towards the need to rename this telescope. A lot of other people are looking at very, very clear evidence and saying, yeah, there's plenty of evidence that this guy um, may have been a great apparatchnik, may have made, you know, the ability to raise a lot of money for these big uh, space projects, but that he was um, doing things, participating uh, knowingly in policies that that hurt um, people in uh, minority groups, like this. Um And then he ran uh, NASA from sixty one to sixty eight um, He was in charge during a lot of the Apollo program um, and um, and uh, so he um, uh, he he helped he had helped um, the Senate committee and everything to, quote, determine the extent of employment of homosexuals and other sex perverts in government. So, I mean, it was very clear that um, that this was uh, a knowledgeable act. Um, again, my one of my role models, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who's an assistant professor of physics at the University of New Hampshire, um, said, uh, quote, I'm so excited for the new images and so angry at NASA headquarters. Um, NASA leadership has stubbornly refused to acknowledge that what is now public info about Webb's legacy means that he does not merit having a great observatory named after him. So, um, again, we'll, uh, we'll touch base with some of these types of subjects more. Um... We're listening a little bit again to an excerpt from my song "Looking In and Looking Out," um, and um, if you read those lyrics, you'll see that that um, that this is uh, what we are trying to look at uh, beyond just science, but looking. At, You know, you look inside the atom. You look inside, you know, you find the quark, you know, the smallest elements. You look deep. But you have to look deep in your own soul as well and know whether or not... uh, You do, even though you're studying science, you do need to be a good human being also. So... um, So, yeah, uh, these people in the LGBTQ community are objecting to naming the telescope after a cold warrior, uh, which made uh, a lot of non-binary people lose their positions and committed suicide as a result. So anyway, um, I guess what it boils down to um, is that uh, it there's good and bad in all science... Uh, And astronomy and the study of cosmology and physics and everything, all these related topics um, are not, uh, they are not, um, you know, free of of the good and the bad. Our, Our history extends also to our future history which, uh, thanks to many discoveries and work being done by current scientists and other people, um, our future history may end up being a little shorter than we might hope. Um, Our powerful discoveries that enable us to release the potential energy which we find in Earth's natural resources, those discoveries enable us to use this energy to power our transportation, our heating and cooling, our manufacturing and other uses. And these activities emit particles that result from the processing and usage of these things. Now some of these particles are very dangerous to us and our fellow creatures that share this planet with us. Some of these particles are responsible for helping to destroy the ecological balance that we depend on in order to stay alive. In fact, so I guess what I'm saying is that even as we search for our cosmic history, we must be careful. One of the things that was most important in developing the NGST was a metal or an element that's called beryllium. It was used in the mirrors of this space telescope. I I hesitate to call it a, it's not a (laughs) spaceship, it's uh, but it, it's interesting because we do shoot this thing up into space. So it's it's floating and actually has to navigate a little bit. Um, so it's kind of like a spaceship, even though it's really a space telescope. So, yeah, it's an interesting concept, a space-based telescope. Anyway, evidently, beryllium, you have to, in order to... Mine. You have to mine the uh, minerals in order to get uh, beryllium to make this mirror. Uh, the mirror has to be uh, very, very, very strong. Of course, it's going to be existing out more than a million miles away, as as President Biden pointed out. Um, but it's also existing in uh, extreme, almost, almost a, a, a perfect. Um, a, zero you know, temperature. I mean, it's, it's incredible cold, um, and could get hit by things flying through space as well. So it has to be incredibly durable. Uh, it has to be pretty light. I mean, it has to have very specific qualities that scientists feel can only come from beryllium. So this is a really important metal, and the way you get it is by mining rocks um, that come from a mountain in Utah, uh, and, um, it, you know, so, so you have to sort of, you know, strip mine, you have to chop down whole mountains. I mean, it's not ecologically a beautiful thing. When you look at these things, I mean, it's very neat the way they make these little lines in the ground, but, um, but uh, it's it's a massive amount of uh, of mountains that are chopped up to do uh, mining. Uh, so mining in general is a um, uh, is a is a pretty severe way of getting things out of the ground that we really depend on. Uh, we haven't figured out a better way to do it, so I guess we kind of have to live with it. Um, also, uh, it turns out that. Uh, Beryllium is highly toxic. Um, it can kill you in, if you get large amounts of it in your body. So it is something you have to be careful about. I do believe that the, that the company, uh, Materion is the name of the company that, that does the mining, is fairly careful. Um, OSHA is looking over all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, uh, it ain't perfect. Um, You know, I did a lot of uh, research on the company because it turns out that there's really only one main company in the United States that mines this particular material that becomes, it's made into um, beryllium. And um, so, yeah, uh, you can only get it from one company, (laughs) Um, but they needed massive amounts of it because... Uh, The mirrors, there are a lot of mirrors on the space telescope, and they are rather large. This is a very big thing. I think it was as big as a tennis court or something like that. This is a massive telescope with huge reflecting mirrors. Um, And uh, so it's really important that we, I think, uh, keep an eye on uh, the safety and fairness of the situation on the ground, so to speak, for the people who work for these companies that um, pull the stuff out of the ground for us so that we can explain, excuse me, so we can explore outer space. Uh, So I won't say too much more on that because uh, I want to move on to some other problems because, like I said, we have the good and the bad, There's been a study that was uh, looked at, um, which was published uh, just recently, that said that uh, an increase in the number of rocket launches will cause damage to our ozone layer, and it will also contribute to altering our climate. Um, So I think previously people used to argue that rocket launches hardly did anything compared with how much pollution and and damage is done by our transportation and other industries, like uh, coal-burning electrical plants, for instance. Um, But um, it turns out that right now, um, with a new private rocket companies, uh, their whole goal as a private company is to make as much money as possible by launching as much stuff as possible into space, uh, stuff and people. Um, So they want to have a lot more rockets go up into space. And it will be detrimental, this new study, um, which is... Uh, led by the uh, researchers from NOAA, NOAA, National Oceanic Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, was focused in on fossil fuel burning rockets. Now, of course, we know that uh, if you uh, read the news at all or you watch uh, programs, that uh, people are trying to get alternative ways of creating energy, uh, electricity, um, powering cars and other vehicles um, by not using fossil fuel burning uh, machines. Um, Well, rockets are the same. Like, for instance, the Falcon 9 by SpaceX. This is a rocket that burns fossil fuel. Um, So it's one of its main components. I mean, it's a you know, rocket fuel is a combination of different things combined. But uh, that's not my goal to look at, um, at rocket science. Um, but I do like to look at things that affect our planet and that affect the quality of our, our science, our, our study of the history of the cosmos. Uh, because if we don't have human beings that will be around long enough to appreciate all these wonderful uh, discoveries that we're making, there's not much point in doing it in the first place. So they've been overlooking the impact of uh, rocket launching, Um, and, you know, they've always said, oh, it's hardly a big deal, you know, look, people flying uh, airplanes burn a hundred times more fuel than rockets uh, that are launched. But the thing is, is that if, um, as, you know, the use of rockets has tripled in the last 10 years, and it's, you know, growing more and more and more, you know, if they have 10 times as many launches, um, which is pretty much what they're expecting, um, there'll be more soot coming out of these rockets. And so they said that in this article that rockets put every year a 1,000 tons of soot into the upper layers of the Earth's atmosphere. This accumulates, just like anything else that affects a, a global warming, uh, it accumulates, it absorbs heat Um which means that those layers of our atmosphere get warmed up. And unfortunately, uh, over the next 50 years or so, uh, it will increase the temperature, the annual average temperature on Earth, uh, as much as possibly up to 4 degrees Fahrenheit more. Now, you have to remember that this is... Just how much rockets are increasing it, there are other things that um, are contributing in addition to rockets. And so when you put all these things together, um, we might end up, uh, unfortunately, not too I don't mean to be too depressing about this, but you know if we if we heat up our atmosphere too much, all of the water that's on Earth could possibly boil away leaving us um, dried up desiccated skeletons if even Um, and um, oh and by the way the exhaust from rockets also contains chlorine and chlorine is what remember I was talking about the ozone chlorine is a known ozone killer Um, so it's really important that we look at these uh, subjects I'd love to direct you towards an article uh, in space.com written by Teresa Polterova Um, and I just want to read what they said about her little bio Um, she's a London based uh, science and technology journalist Um, she writes fiction she's an amateur gymnast Um, She was originally from Prague, the Czech Republic. She spent seven years working as a reporter, a script writer, presenting TV programs uh, on public TV. And then she went to school. She got a master's in science from the International Space University in France. She got a bachelor in journalism, a master's in cultural anthropology from Prague, um, from the Charles University, And then she worked at Engineering and Technology magazine and a little bit at Live Science and Space.com and in professional engineering. Uh, Oh, these are other publications, professional engineering uh, via satellite and space news. And served as a maternity coverer Science editor at the European Space Agency, the ESA. Remember, as we look at the NGST, another it's another acronym. Watch out for those acronyms. Um, when we look at the NGST, the space telescope, which was just launched. Um, just a little reminder that it was a collaboration between the Canadian Space Agency, the American Space Agency, which, of course, is NASA, and the European Space Agency, the ESA. So um, those are the three main groups. Uh, There probably were some others that were part of that uh, as well. Um, NASA is also continuing um, ICESat-2, which um, helps to look at... uh, Arctic sea ice that's been lost. Uh, Evidently we've lost about a third of the Arctic sea ice. And these um, uh, this is another NASA project. Um, It's a space laser and it measures how the Earth changes. Um, They um, discovered glacial lakes under the surface of the Antarctic ice um, and uh, human influences have been changing the water levels of these things. So uh, the ice sat too is another, like a lot of people uh, hear about the big big projects like, like the NGST and like, you know, in the olden days it was Apollo and, uh, you know, Uh, these kind of huge uh, projects that get an enormous amount of money and attention from the media and from scientists and everything Um, but we have to remember that there are other projects that might get a little less uh, attention but that are very, very important to us and to our planet. Um, So I don't want to go too far into detail on that, um, but I'm going to put some of my research notes, um, uh, at, again, uh, on my website, where you can read more about um, this, and I'll share some of it uh, underneath the podcast wherever you are listening to your podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. Um, So you can learn more about other projects at NASA and the Goddard Space Flight Center and places like that. So let's see. Um, Just want to remind you that I always extend an open invitation to anybody out there who's an astrologist. Uh, If you study early cosmology, if you're a physicist, or if you yourself are a music composer, a music critic, an arranger, a science historian, or a telescope specialist, please um, drop me a note. Uh, I'm always looking for a guest um, to come and join me on the podcast. Um, and um, And remember... Please do um, think about supporting Opus Magnanimus. Um, don't forget to like us and, um, you know, all the usual things about podcasts. You know, we want you to like it uh, with the little thumbs up thingy. Uh, we would love you to uh, subscribe. Um, to You can hit the subscribe button that's usually on the YouTubes Uh, that I put out which are shorter versions um, and previews of the audio podcasts and of course in the audio podcast you will see links underneath that will uh, show you how you can um, subscribe um, which basically becomes like a donation to help us help me continue uh, creating Uh, every couple of weeks new episodes of this composing music and eventually improving uh, the music itself because we will want to try to put uh, together a budget to hire more live professional musicians Um, we might need to use a professional studio to re-record things and I would love to see after this project is completed, or maybe even before it's done, um, to be able to perform some of the music that I'm writing uh, in public, um, on tour, and uh, to take it on the road, as they like to say. So please remember to support us, and um, we'll be putting up the names of supporters as people start chipping in, I've only been doing this, this is only the third episode, so it's really new. I'm hoping that you will enjoy it. And please, please, tell your friends, anybody who you think might enjoy this. Remember, I am also really interested in your opinion. So wherever there's a place for comments, either below the YouTubes or the actual podcasts, feel free to rake me over the coals Tell me what you loved. Tell me what you hated. This will help me to grow better and better at creating podcasts like this for you to be able to listen to and to be able to enjoy. See you in episode four. Uh, I haven't announced yet what the subject matter is going to be exactly for that, but um, I will... Put that into the preview uh, that will come out pretty soon on YouTube. Um, And, uh, yeah, stay tuned. And uh, see you at the Big Bang.